everybody. Welcome to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Jorgensen. And I'm Finn Arne Jorgensen. And we're happy to welcome today Jane Turner. Jay is going to be talking about his book, Charged, A History of Batteries and Lessons for a Clean Future, out with University of Washington Press in 2022. Jay is Professor of Environmental Studies at Wellesley College, USA. So we'll give it over to you to introduce us to Charged. Great. Well, thanks for the introduction and thanks Dolly and Finn for hosting the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities book talks and the invitation to participate today. So yeah, Charged. I mean, this book has been more than a decade in the making, but I actually wrote the final version of the book really pretty quickly in 2020 and early 2021, right as discussions of the Green New Deal were accelerating, you know, electric cars suddenly started to seem like they were merging into the mainstream and the imperative to transition to a net zero future by 2050 really gained momentum. But it was, you know, what was missing from those discussions that motivated this book. So to start off, I thought I'd start with the Green New Deal kind of as a, as a framing, because when that was proposed by in the U.S. by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey in 2019, you know, just it stood out for its breadth and, and its scope. You know, it, it once reflected the imperative to make an aggressive transition to a clean energy future, but it did so in a way that you know, emphasized the centrality of issues of justice and equity. Um, and so, you know, it was a move, you know, kind of the vision there was a mobilization that was meant to be on the scale of the New Deal in World War II to advance, but in, in the service of advancing a just transition to, um, you know, renewable energy technologies. And you know, it played a, that resolution, the discussions around the Green New Deal played such an important role in expanding debates over climate activism in the US. You know, it wasn't just about infrastructure and climate policy, it was about social policy and about issues of climate justice. And that was important to reshaping the discussions that were ha happening amongst progressive climate activists, amongst Democrats and in Congress in the US. But as a historian, there was one thing that really stood out to me that was missing. And you know, when you think back to the original New Deal and what made it possible, right, the massive investments in infrastructure, the new jobs, the growth of the nation's economy, kind of all the things that made that possible in the 1930s and the 1940s, you know, it wasn't just a national sense of purpose. It wasn't just, you know, progressive government policies or, you know, the work of millions and millions of, um, of workers. It was something more mundane. It was a mobilization of unprecedented masses of metals and chemicals and other materials that were needed to build the dams, to you know, put up the power lines, to erect the bridges, to pave roads, and during World War II to manufacture wartime materiel. So just as the New Deal of the 1930s had massive material implications, that will be true of policies that advance a Green New Deal as well. Yet in 2019, you know, after that resolution was introduced, you know, kind of the material dimensions of a clean energy transition were not drawing much attention. Um, nothing in the Green New Deal itself and the resolution introduced in the U.S. mentioned materials, supply chains, or mining, or, or for that matter, miners. So kind of in short, right, renewable energy technologies may be carbon light, which is a good thing, but they are still materials intensive. And that's a point that was often emitted from discussions of how to address climate change historically and you know, even up to the introduction of the Green New Deal. Yet it's 
these material dimensions of a clean energy transition that have some of the most pressing implications for matters of environmental justice and the communities that will be on the front lines of mining, processing, and manufacturing these technologies around the world. So that was kind of the specific motivation. That's what kept, kept getting me up really early in the morning to write this book. Um, but more broadly, you know, what I hope is that this project also contributes to understandings of energy and environmental history in a couple of different ways. So let me kind of take a step back and talk about those for a second. And so one is just you know, the fact that batteries have, have always been a footnote at best in energy history. And that's something that I've thought about a lot. Um, you know, usually the focus and energy history is on the prime movers. It's the, um, you know, it's, and it's a story of kind of increasing quantities of energy that have become available and important to modern society. And so the transition from biomass to fossil fuels to nuclear power, and, you know, it centers on increased uh, energy abundance. And my contention is that, you know, despite the fact that batteries, you know, in terms of the amount of energy they deliver really are a footnote at best in energy history, they have played a little appreciated but key role in energy history more broadly. And so that's one thing I've thought about that is important to this book. And you know, focusing on batteries really uh, brings, I guess, um, well, into focus you know, the importance, not so much of energy quantity, but issues of energy quality. And so when I say energy quality, what I mean is that what makes batteries valuable isn't how much energy that they can store, but it's the unique qualities of that energy, that the chemical energy stored in a battery is portable, it's available instantaneously, and it's pollution-free, at least at the point of use. And it's these qualities that explain why batteries have been so valuable to us kind of in the broader context of, um, of energy systems. Um, just a quick aside, there are a whole bunch of, I hope, really interesting kind of factoids and in charged. And one is that we pay a thousand times more Kind of roughly speaking, for the energy delivered by a double A battery, and then if we got that same tiny quantity of electricity from the electrical grid, you know, so why is it that we pay so much for that electricity? Is because the qualities of that energy are so useful to us. So, you know, this book really kind of brings into focus the importance of energy quality. Um, a third point is you know, around the visibility of energy, because one of the great accomplishments of the energy industry writ large has been making its product largely invisible, um, and to the point that people take it for granted. But batteries have always demanded users' attention. For much of the 20th century, drivers had to top off the electrolyte in their car's starter batteries, right? You go to the service station, and you know, before the 1970s, you didn't just fill the gas tank, you added water to the battery, or at least check the water level in your battery for the electrolyte. Uh, in the era of the Sony Walkman, you know, people fretted over the disposal of mercury-containing AA batteries. And in the age of the smartphone, right, keeping batteries charged has really kind of become you know, a constant nag. Uh, you know, so in a world where energy seems at once ubiquitous and largely invisible, batteries demand a great deal more attention, you know, whether it's replacing them, charging them, or deciding how to dispose of them than almost any other component of the modern energy system. So those are a couple of points that, you know, connect more broadly, I think, to issues of energy and environmental history. 
Um, but the way kind of the book itself is structured, it's really fundamentally a material history of batteries. Because what's in batteries matters a lot. Um, and although batteries can be made of, you know, kind of a tremendous number of combinations of materials, very few combinations have actually been commercially successful. Void, you know, the ones that have been uh, successful have been deployed on, you know, just an enormous scale. So the book is organized around three case studies. Um, the first case study is the lead acid battery, which is the starter battery in you know, pretty much every car out there. Even most of the new electric cars still have an old school lead acid battery, not too different from the one that was you know, put into um, cars back in the 1920s. And you know, so lead acid batteries have been ubiquitous since the start of the 20th century. They're highly toxic, um, but they're also the single most recycled product in the world. Um, so that's one case study. Uh, another case study is the alkaline manganese batteries. These are the disposable batteries, the AA batteries. Uh, more often these days, it seems like the AAA batteries that are in people's remote controls or maybe kids' toys. And you know, on the one hand, these are an environmental success story. They used to have uh, a fair amount of mercury in them. About 1% by mass was mercury, but that was phased out in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, but the cost of phasing out mercury actually meant kind of intensifying the amount of energy needed to manufacture these disposable um, batteries. So that's the middle uh, case study of the book. And then the longest case study is actually the, it's two chapters um, of this, I guess, six chapter um, book is focused on the lithium ion batteries because these are the rechargeable batteries that are in modern day electronics and electric vehicles. Um, you know, starting in the 1990s, they powered a wireless revolution with the rise of smartphones and now they're set to power a clean energy transition. But you know, lithium-ion batteries rely on a wide range of materials that are sourced from around the world. But you know, the actual processing of those materials and the manufacturing of the batteries uh, occurs almost entirely in China. So those are the three case studies, the lead-acid battery, the alkaline battery, and the lithium-ion batteries. And you know, just to kind of wrap things up to open up the discussion, um, I'll finish off with one more point, um, which comes back to the beginning and just, you know, this emphasis in the Green New Deal and the importance of a clean energy future and social justice, um, you know, it, for all of you know, the emphasis of that, there was you know, little attention to the nitty gritty work of sourcing the materials for those technologies in ways that are equally sustainable and socially just. And you know, I think that lack of attention you know, stems from a really deep aversion to wrestling with the material consequences of a clean energy future within the sustainability and environmental community. And I think you know, that aversion kind of goes back to some you know, tenets of modern environmental thought. And you know, so this is where I end the book is you know, arguing that we need to rethink some of these tenets of modern environmentalism. And one is that the solution isn't in retreating to the local. These uh, you know, clean energy technologies, the batteries and the other technologies, they depend mightily on global supply chains. Uh, the solution isn't trying to get back to nature. Um, getting back to nature doesn't really help a whole lot when you're trying to understand um, battery technologies. Uh, the technologies from which batteries are made are highly 
synthesized materials um, that are you know really more manufactured than than they are mined. And you know the third tenet I raise is the idea of consuming less. Um, and the argument I make is we can't transition to uh, renewable energy future by you know improving the efficiency of technologies or uh, reducing consumption. Uh, instead, we really need to acknowledge the scale of both production and consumption of solar panels, wind turbines, heat pumps, uh, you know, electrified vehicles, and the batteries that are going to be important to many of these technologies, you know, the scale of production and consumption that are going to be needed to unhitch the world from fossil fuels. And so, you know, there's been, you know, not much attention to this materiality of the clean energy transition, but, you know, this has begun to change and really surprisingly quickly, kind of from when I started the book until, um, until you know, what was happening this summer, where one of the most surprising features of the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, right, the big climate bill that kind of surprised everybody in July and was uh, signed into law in August, is that it focuses uh, a good bit on the materiality and the supply chains important to manufacturing advanced batteries and lithium-ion batteries specifically. And you know, I think that's a step in the right direction because I think, you know, just as the climate challenge requires careful forethought and aggressive action, you know, so too does building the mines, the supply chains, and the recycling infrastructure needed to enable a more just and sustainable clean energy future. And so all, all of that, I argue, and charged is essential to thinking about the material implications of a clean energy transition from the ground up. So I'll stop there and uh, be delighted to have comments and questions and uh, open things up. Thanks, Jay. This sounds, I mean, like a really, really interesting book and also incredibly relevant for us. Uh, as many of you may have seen uh, online or in person, one of the, I mean, or the major theme we are working with right now in the greenhouse is green transitions. So we have a lot of people, I mean, some are in the audience now working on green transitions and really interrogating what we can do as humanities scholars, what we can contribute to these debates about uh, green transition, because we, we will not design better batteries, right? More energy efficient <laughs> batteries, but we can ask what they mean, how, what it means to live with batteries in different ways as well. Uh, and to question also the, uh, I mean, the, the production of them in different ways. Mm -hmm. So, um, so based on that, there's a lot of things we can talk about. Uh, and I thought one of the things that struck me when you presented here was talking about the visibility of batteries that you know, most energy systems have become ubiquitous and invisible, whereas batteries are, I mean, they are constantly in our way in different ways. So we have to, to engage with them materially, uh, which I think is a very good observation. Um, and then I'm wondering, you know, what happens then when you bring, you know, identity into this? I mean, I'm thinking particularly about cars where you know, some of the energy there, if you, especially if you compare US and Norway, the energy is supposed to be visible. You know, you're supposed to have uh, some exhaust fumes, uh, the sound, <laughs> right, of basically what is a series of controlled explosions in, in running a car, right? So there's something sensory here that's often tied to particular ideas of masculinity. 
Whereas in Norway, I mean, almost every single car sold now, a new car is electric. And they're very quiet. quiet. I mean, they have lots of power. That's how they, they frame it then. Um, but but are there other ways you see this, this idea of the identity of the user of batteries as someone who uses energy in particular ways, uh, where that mm -hmm. becomes an issue? Yeah, that's a, the whole question of identity and uh, EV transition and kind of a comparative approach to that, thinking about it in Norway versus the U.S., right, where the you know, Ford, right, and their big pickup truck has captured so much attention. <laughs> it's really, uh, I think there's going to be you know, some interesting research on that. Before I kind of get to the, that part of your question, just you know, the broader question of visibility of energy, I, mean, I think ties back to just something that can constantly, I don't know, didn't catch me surprise, by surprise, but just any time I would tell somebody that I was working on a project that involved batteries, you know, I'd be at a you know, faculty meeting or something and my work would come up. The you know, first thing anybody would ask is, you know, what do I do with those batteries, right, that are sitting in my cupboard, right, that, you know, I've taken out of things, you know, what do I do with them? And I think, you know, for a lot of people, kind of this shiny silver double A batteries, you know, just represented something toxic and they wanted to know what to do with them now. And I think you know, one of the challenges of, you know, thinking about these kinds of technologies is learning how to read them differently. And I think for most people, they're thinking about, you know, how do I read and understand what to do with the waste, right? But that really obscures what's most important and what charge really emphasizes, which isn't so much where these things are going, but where they came from in the first place. Right. And so helping people understand in terms of the, you know, reading batteries, you know, the wrestling with the visibility and how it makes them, you know, I think makes people uncomfortable, right? People who think of themselves as being environmentally minded, kind of to the identity question that it's not about downstream. And in many cases, we need to um, shift the focus to the upstream and the ways these technologies are entangling us with communities around the world. Um, but I think, you know, to the question you were driving at then, you know, this question of identity and masculinity and combustion, you know, the there's no, there's, there's such a strong kind of gender dimension to the politics of energy um, and kind of the performance of that in the United States uh, in particular right now. And, you know, it's going to be, you know, there's a lot of high expectations around kind of how America's most popular vehicle going electric, the Ford F-150, how that could really be a transformative moment. But, you know, it's not about kind of the low operating costs of those vehicles um, or their sustainability. I think, you know, a big question is, you know, that tension with kind of undermining you know, a very strong culture of kind of, you know, built Ford tough, right? I mean, that's, a, I think that's their, their logo, right? You know, how are they going to harness that to this electric transition? And, you know, I, I suppose, you know, if they're not successful, right, the, the vehicle, and it'd be really interesting to see if, you know, the vehicle actually stumps because, you know, that kind of cultural rebranding, um, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be hard to achieve. Uh, but I think, I mean, you're right to frame this in the lens of identity, in identity politics, I think that goes a long ways towards, you know, explaining a lot of the discussions of energy in the U.S., not just around EVs, but fossil fuels more broadly, and the threat that something like a Green New Deal, especially somebody like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right, championing it, you know, why that has been um, so deeply political. Well, speaking of um, corporations, then, and, and their actions behind this, I was thinking about this invisibility of batteries then. So if my car has a flat battery, 
I basically have gone to the garage and said, put a new battery in it, right? And I'm not necessarily paying attention to whose battery, like what, what the brand of the battery is, um, you know, or in my smartphone, it's whatever battery kind of came with it. Um, but the one exception I, I think of automatically is kind of the Energizer versus Duracell right. um, in the US. Um, that that you know the bunny keeping going and going kind of thing um so i was wondering about how corporations then behind these technologies and these different kinds of batteries deal with that invisibility versus visibility yeah that's a that's a really useful point of comparison right because you know in, as a consumer product right the energizer bunny and the duracell copper top and i can still hear kind of the slam of the copper top you know in the advertisements the duracell i don't know maybe they still run them um but that they you know really built up a huge identity and uh, around or not identity but a consumer kind of presence right because they were fundamentally consumer products corporations and i think kind of what you're pointing to dolly is that is different both from the starter batteries that go into vehicles which you know tend to buy you buy them in a garage and they go flat or they go dead um and they are in your car for you know three to five years and then they get replaced again and you don't have to really think too much about them and there's certainly been efforts to brand that um diehard batteries in the U.S. kind of have a reputation. But I think even that's really quite different than how the um, the lithium-ion battery industry has emerged. And I think it's, it's a useful historical point because both the lead-acid batteries and the AA batteries, especially in the United States, were very strong domestic industries um, and relied on domestic resources, uh, not entirely, uh, but for, for the most part. Uh, whereas the turn towards the lithium ion batteries has really been much more about consumer products manufacturing. And as that emerged in the 1980s and 1990s, right, that was when kind of the um, you know, manufacturing, you know, the geography of manufacturing was shifting over to Asia and China was in, beginning to grow rapidly. And, and so the lithium ion battery industry didn't uh, have any foothold in the United States because it was so closely tied to supplying the consumer products industries that were emerging in Asia at the time where they were, you know, they were original equipment manufacturers, right? OEMs that sold their product to these corporations and then they got integrated into um, you know, the laptop or the camcorder in ways that were more invisible to consumers compared to those AA batteries. And so I think, you know, this question of visibility has kind of changed across these technologies and changed over time. Um, but I think, you know, there's still the constant nag of needing to charge those rechargeable batteries and, you know, people being worried about their batteries dying. Um, first day of class this semester, I went to get in my car. And it wouldn't start because <laughs> the battery had gone dead. Um, and so there's, you know, people are always nervous, you know, about, about that, whether they're changing the batteries or just having to um, worry about recharging them. There's that element of visibility that's different, uh, you know, from many of the en energy systems that we rely upon. Okay, so we have a question from Linda in the chat about uh, how far the materiality of batteries uh, or around batteries has changed since now quite often you can't actually change the batteries yeah. when they die in, in devices because they're so tightly connected to these devices so instead you 
you have to change the whole device then. So uh, could you say something about that development? Yeah, um, because that's certainly been a, you know, that's come with kind of transitions and consumer products manufacturing and in part, yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question because it highlights another big historical shift and actually it connects back to a bigger, broader idea that's been important to environmental historians and energy historians, which is infrastructure. Like what is infrastructure, right? We think about energy and we think about it being big power plants and the electrical grid. But one of the things that kind of struck me in my project is just you know, how ubiquitous the AA and the AAA batteries. And before that, it was the C batteries and the D batteries. But you could go anywhere in the world and you could buy one of these batteries and plug it into your device. I mean, it became an international standard, uh, which became a certain kind of a version of infrastructure in and of itself, right? Manufacturers designed their devices to accommodate the batteries that were available, right? It constrained their options. And the big shift in coming back to Linda's question was with lithium ion batteries, there's the ability to manufacture the batteries both as kind of cylindrical cells, uh, which would be familiar to us. But I think it was 1995 or so, lithium ion polymer batteries uh, began to scale. And unlike kind of traditional batteries, the lithium ion polymer cells could be any shape you wanted them to be. And so this is what enabled you know, companies like Apple, right, to have batteries that were shaped to fit inside the product they wanted to build, rather than to have, you know, to build their product around the infrastructure of consumer batteries. And, you know, that's enabled kind of the race to thinness and gluing everything together and, you know, worked against making batteries kind of a easily serviceable part. Um, and, you know, in part that was also made possible by improvements in batteries, which made them last for a few years, right? Not nearly as long as we would want them to last, um, but, you know, long enough to make these viable, you know, products on the market. Yeah, so I think, you know, that's kind of that, that question gets at that transition from batteries being um, replaceable, consumable parts to being something that's so intricate to the device that, you know, it never, it can't really be removed. Well, one of the things there that you mentioned was really about standardization. Um, and so I was curious about this. How did the standardization process work so that it is that, that there became these standard sized batteries that you could get across the whole world? Whereas we know electrical plugs were not standardized, right? So, yeah. so you have to carry a device that makes you change over, but yet somehow batteries aren't that way. Do you know how it was that happened? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the really fine detailed <laughs> history of the standardization of batteries is yet to be written. I you know, delve into it um, a little bit, but I don't feel like I've got all of the answers. But, you know, what I know, and kind of your point of contrast, uh, electrical plugs is an interesting one. Uh, but what I you know, know is that in the 1910s, 1920s, is dry cell batteries, as they were called, these are kind of the antecedents of today's alkaline manganese AA batteries, is they were um, becoming commonplace and they were being used in uh, you know, something I didn't talk about in my introduction, but I talk about batteries as an, an enabling technology. It enables other things. And one of the things that these batteries were really important for enabling was early telephone systems. I mean, the same way we worry about 
charging our cell phones, right? The earliest telephone systems in the 1910s and 1920s all relied upon dry cell batteries. So you, you had a battery service for your telephone. Somebody would come around and replace the batteries in your, um, your telephones. And part of the challenge was that there was not much standardization and the batteries were being used in flashlights. They were you know, being used in radio technologies. And uh, Dolly, to come back to your question, they're being used in things that were important during World War I. And so the military was concerned about the um, disorder in the world of batteries and the number of batteries they were having to stock to supply uh, the military. And so after World War I, there was a push to standardize batteries. And it happened, I think, in the US, was kind of the driving the National um, Standards Bureau was the driver behind this. And every kind of 10 years, they published new battery standards. And you know, I kind of read through each of these battery standards and how they evolved. And is in and one of the interesting transitions is batteries went from being really big to getting smaller and smaller. And it was in 1935 or so that the AA and AAA batteries were first standardized. And they're still, you know, the dimensions that they established then are the dimensions that you know, our devices are being designed around today. Um, so that's a little bit about the standardization story. Okay, so we have some more questions in the chat is good. And if you have any more, just keep adding them there. Uh, but first, uh, from Jenny, so who then really appreciates the focus on materialities of the green transition through the batteries. Um, and she was then wondering about, you know, does this shift towards looking at hardware made also imply a shift in focus on how they are charged, these batteries. So bringing up the example in, in the UK, how you still rely on fossil fuels to charge electric vehicles. Yeah, um, yeah, thanks, Jenny. That's a really important topic. And you know, one of the things I've learned working on this book, um, I guess is kind of why I'm less concerned about how it is we charge the batteries. And the reason is, you know, as I and I've been kind of observing the clean energy sector um, carefully in the last couple of years, is just realizing, you know, I guess in my view, we're going to see the transition towards, you know, lower carbon, lower emit emitting, you know, power electricity sources. That's going to continue to happen, right? The cost of renewable energy technologies is falling so quickly. And the scale of production is increasing, and their kind of penetration in the market is rising. That you know, in the UK or in the US or other parts of the world, you know, we're going to see a significant decline in emissions uh, associated with charging whatever we're plugging into the electrical grid. And I guess I mean that's the strongest argument for an electric vehicle or um, a heat pump or any of these kind of in, end user um, you know, products is that if you can plug it in, it's going to get cleaner over time, right? Whereas if you buy a conventional furnace or a conventional vehicle, it's always going to be dependent upon fossil fuels and eventually greenhouse gases to the atmosphere as it is used. And so, you know, as we look to the future, we can expect these things that are getting plugged in, they're going to get cleaner along with the grid. But on the, on the flip side, the actual materials that go into these products, they're intrinsic to the product and, you know, sourcing you know, if we're talking about electric vehicles, you know, the nickel and the aluminum and the cobalt um, and the manganese, I mean, there's some, you know, they're lithium ion batteries really refers to a family of batteries with different cathodes. And we're going to 
continue to see kind of the material chemistry evolve. I think you know, there's been a lot of concern around cobalt for important reasons because so much of it comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo, where uh, extraction processes are you know, deeply concerning. Um, so there's been a push to phase out cobalt. Um, but no matter which of these battery chemistries we're using, they're you know just the mining and the processing is so intensive and um, and dirty that you know we need to work really hard. I think we need to work harder or at least as hard to manage that as we do the push for a transition to a cleaner electric grid. Um, yeah, so that's kind of you know what that good question makes me think of. I hope that's helpful. So, just just kind of a follow up of that. So, one of the things that's happened then with this green transition, particularly here in Europe, in that you've electrified a lot more things, is this uh, huge demand, rising demand for electricity. And right now we are in a energy crisis where people are saying, well, we shouldn't have phased out these nuclear power plants and the coal plants, so now we need to start them up again. So uh, while I I agree. I think you're right in this kind of long term perspective that we are moving towards cleaner production systems. What do you think, in a way, the implications will be of this, this short term, hopefully short term crisis we're in now, where people are in a way also questioning then the electrification that's tied to batteries? Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I don't know, you go back and you look at the like post-World War II era in energy, and at least like from this distance, it just seems like coal keeps going up and energy production keeps going up and it looks really kind of boring and just like, you know, linear. And, like right now, everything just seems completely up in the air. There's so much change in the world of energy um, and just kind of in real time. And so, yeah, I mean, this question of the energy crisis, um, you know, which you know, connected to, in Europe, connected to Ukraine, or in the United States, just the heat waves in California and the energy crisis there, or you know, in the U.S. Uh, and the cold waves and the crises that struck Texas over the last um, several years. I mean, all of these kind of instances that really highlight how managing demand and ensuring that the electric grid stays online and can meet all of these demands. Um, you know, it's really been pushed to the forefront of attention. And I, you know, I think you know, the challenges there are real. Um, it's going to take an enormous amount of planning to transition to, I guess, you know, to an electric grid that can serve all of these you know, new clean energy technologies um, you know, in, as, they are, as they are needed. Um, and do so, I guess, just in a way I mean, it just it requires a large scale investment in infrastructure to do that. Um, but it's there's so much uncertainty around it as well, right? You know, things like electric vehicles could help to stabilize the electric grid, right? And it, you know, part of it's a policy question, not you know, and certainly not just a technology question, right? But are there ways that electric vehicles could put electricity back onto the grid at periods of high demand? So I think in the U.S., you know, that's been a big kind of talking point recently around California, right? You know, the electric grid can't possibly, you know, meet the demands for electric vehicles. But, you know, there's been very little attention to the possibility that if we think about the, the system in a holistic way, right, not just, of, you know, consumers and producers with the producers being the large scale energy generators, but you know, the possibility that there could be distributed contributions 
you know, both in terms of demand side management, but also plugging in some of these batteries back into the grid to help stabilize that. You know, that could change the way we think about um, stabilizing the electric grid. But I think that conversation's just starting, at least in the U.S. Maybe, maybe it looks different in Norway. Yeah, I don't think that problem is solved here either. Um, but let's talk recycling for a little bit. Um, we have a question from Matthew. Uh, if you could talk a bit more about the process and political economy of battery recycling, I mean, what happens with them? Um, and I mean, here in Norway, it's we all have little containers in our house, right? You need to put the batteries here and then they all get recycled. That's that's the ideal. You're not supposed to throw them out. We had a massive fire just now in the recycling uh, plant here, most likely started by batteries in the household waste. So could you talk a little bit about battery recycling in general? Yeah, well, it's, it's a big topic. Um, the, I think you know, it's a, in terms of the political economy of it, I mean, there are a couple of different dimensions to this. I think you know, one, there's you know, a lot of pressure from the environmental community to have um, you know, a, a story to tell about recycling. Um, and so just kind of the political, political economy, I think, actually has a lot to do with consumer demand. Um, and so one of the stories that I tell in Charged is how the corporations took the initiative to try and put together a recycling initiative uh, for single-use disposable batteries in the early um, 2000s because they were concerned about losing market share and wanted to you know, be able to have a green story to tell about their batteries. And uh, ultimately, their efforts failed. They couldn't get everybody on board, um, all the major um, battery manufacturers, to do this. Uh, but it was a really intensive focus for companies like Energizer, Energizer and Duracell uh, and, and Rayovac. Um, and so I think you know, that's one piece of this. Uh, you know, part of it is um, you know, often in terms of the economy, the recycling doesn't actually make sense. And that really varies across these different battery chemistries. And so when you look at the three case studies I take up in this book, you know, the lead acid batteries, they're very high, highly recy recycled, you know, to the point in the U.S. it's something like, you know, it's 95 plus percent of these batteries, 99 percent plus of these batteries get recycled. And, you know, the story there is one about just the, how easy it is to recycle these batteries. Um, but in terms of the political economy of it, you know, the pressure to do so because the batteries are so hazardous. Um, and the fact that lead has been so highly regulated. And so kind of in that instance, you know, the politics and the policies really have helped enable such a um, you know, tight uh, and successful recycling system. Not always successful. I can also talk about uh, instances where things have gone wrong. Um, but I think, you know, the last part of this to, you know, this Matthew's question is, the political economy of recycling for the lithium ion batteries, I mean, that's taken on new salience because there's a real interest in building out a recycling chain in the United States and in Europe uh, to keep these materials from going back to China, uh, essentially, um, that it's seen as being important you know, strategically uh, to have a viable recycling industry to kind of, you know, be able to you know, mine the urban environment and have and maintain this as a domestic um, you know, supply of battery resources. And so I think that concern, that strategic concern about critical minerals, I mean, that's been really important to the political economy of kind of 
recycling um, lithium ion batteries recently. And you know, that's you see this if you read the investment terms and the Inflation Reduction Act closely. Sorry. There. Um, so uh, Beatrice had a, a question because we've been you've mentioned several times about the material, like where the material comes. You, you want us to think about the production that goes into these batteries. Right. And um, you mentioned, for example, cobalt coming from uh, Congo. Um, are there new trends like the new trends to deep sea mining that may affect where the materials are coming from? Um, so have you in investigated this kind of transition, the transition from mainland mining to offshore mining and how that affects batteries? Yeah, I guess it really, thanks for the question, Beatrice. Um, and I guess I should kind of start by saying, I, I don't know. <laughs> this is kind of a real blind spot for me. I just, I one thing I've come to really appreciate you know, from this project is, and I mean, keep in mind, if you, if you know my much about my work previously, my first book was about wilderness, right? And protecting lands from mining and logging and you know road building. And here I am spending a lot of time talking about the importance of mining uh, in, my, in my third book. Um, but part of that is, you know, I've really come to appreciate just, you know, how complicated the mining industry is and the supply chains that connect mine to product to um, kind of our, our lives. And like figuring that out for, and the materials I focus on in my book are lead, manganese, lithium, cobalt, and graphite, nickel to a certain extent, like figuring out kind of the geography and the history and the you know material chemistry of those materials that was a really heavy lift for me as a, someone who's a historian and not a material chemist and you know and, and I, I know a lot of things fell to the side in the process of that and I've, I've heard a lot about deep sea mining actually deep sea mining companies have gotten in touch with me to say you need to know more about deep sea mining than than you do um, but it's not something I've really investigated uh, to this point. But I think you know there are just lots of you know the challenges of mining on land are so significant. Um, so I know that I have concerns about what this would look like if it was happening in the deep sea. But I don't have um, specific things to say about the transition. So we have also some questions from Rocio. We'll do the first one um, first then. So batteries uh, seem to be one of the most greenwashed products of the sustainability movement. Uh, so could you talk a bit about the marketing aspect of lithium batteries? Yeah, so thinking about how they might market them as, you know, green, uh, green technology, but yet, as you're pointing out, they actually have to be produced from things that come from very specific context. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a really, it's a provocative question. Um, and it, it kind of, it connects back to my mind, Dolly, to your question about kind of the visibility and, you know, what stuff, you know, do we put in, you know, the AA batteries that we replace ourselves versus the things that are built in to the devices that we use. And right, I mean, really, the lithium-ion battery companies actually have a pretty low profile. Um, you know, the big manufacturers, I mean, the biggest manufacturers most people have never heard of, um, you know, companies like CATL out of China or BYD out of China. Um, you know, Panasonic is a big player, Samsung's a big player, but they're not the biggest player. It's you know, largely companies I think most people don't know about. And you know, 
and I guess when I think of greenwashing, I think of kind of deliberate advertising campaigns. And it, these are companies that don't actually advertise their batteries. Um, but the companies that buy their batteries and put them into their products, they do a lot of advertising. And so I think, you know, this is where this question really starts to gain traction. And I think, is it really, I wonder if it's greenwashing about the batteries or if it's just greenwashing about the prospects for an electrified future, right? It's, you know, electric cars are really what are described as being green as opposed to the batteries themselves being described as being green. Um, and I think, you know, to the extent that you know, that's gained momentum and kind of gotten ahead of the material side of the story, I don't know if that's greenwashing or not, but I think, you know, that's really what's kind of troubled me about, um, about the emphasis on electric cars as being green, being green is that just so often it misses that material um, dimension of the story. And so, you know, certainly, you know, kind of my big goal for this book was to ground those technologies back in, uh, back in the periodic table and connect the periodic table to all these different places around the world that have been, and that are you know, tied up in supplying these materials and that we need, you know, need to think about um, carefully, right, to um, ensure that these materials as this industry grows, are extracted in ways that are as sustainable and um, you know, mindful of working conditions um, as possible. So one of the things that's come up then in this talk is then how, in a way, telling the, doing a history of batteries is very hard to do as a national thing because these batteries are so co connected to other places then. So, so Building then on uh, Rosia's question, the second question, uh, I want to ask you know how how do you then do this as an environmental historian? Uh, you know, and what what do you gain from this also then in in writing this this history? Yeah, this is really um, yeah a, a good question, and you know the story of batteries is one that is transnational and becomes increasingly transnational because the materials that go into batteries become more diverse over time. It's kind of, you go through these case studies that I focused on. So the lead acid batteries are actually pretty domestic, um, at least in the United States, but many countries in the world have supplies of lead that they can mine and manufacture batteries domestically. Whereas, but, you know, to hold a lithium ion battery in your hand is really to hold, you know, a little bit of kind of the whole world in your hand because the materials are drawn from so many different places. And so, you know, that portion of my book is transnational. It follows the um, you know materials around the world and, and ultimately connects them back to China because that is uh, because China back in the early 2000s started investing in this industry and supporting it in ways that um, the EU and the US did not. And so you know and so I think you're you're right that kind of the story of kind of modern battery technologies is. A transnational story, and it's also become a political story, um, especially with the Inflation Reduction Act. One of the kind of stipulations of that piece of legislation is that um, batteries that go into electric vehicles in the future um, that are going to get subsidies from the U.S. government cannot have any connection to China, um, which I think you know really speaks to the protectionist mindset that um, has shaped kind of discussions around the clean energy supply chain in the U.S. Uh, at least since you know over the last year. So I wanted to ask then uh, a little bit about the future. I mean, it's kind of a tricky question to ask of a historian, but in working then with 
did this project, researching its history and also taking stock where we are today. What do you see as the, I mean, part of the greatest challenges, but also the greatest opportunities and interesting directions the, the whole battery industry and living with batteries uh, could end up going? Yeah, um, that's, a, that's an interesting question. And I think one is just realizing the scale of production. Um, you know, we, we, you know, the modern world has been built on, you know, with fossil fuels, right? And we know that scale of production that has been necessary to enable, um, you know, enable the systems that so many people depend upon. We're, we're going to have to do that again if we're going to transition to clean energy technologies. And on the one hand, that's really daunting uh, to realize just the, you know, the scale of materials and manufacturing that's going to go into all of the solar panels and wind turbines and um, batteries that, you know, could make the system work. But I guess, you know, thinking about the future, it's also an opportunity because most of, you know, the vast majority of the mines, the vast majority of the factories that are going to do this work still haven't been built. They're going to be built very soon to supply this growing industry and to you know, meet you know, this demand. Um, and you know, so there's this moment that we're in right now where we have a chance to really emphasize the importance of doing this in ways that don't reproduce the, you know, as much as we can keep them from reproducing the ills of the you know, fossil fuel era. And you know, think about putting into place you know, standards for mining practices. Um, you know, ensuring that, you know, the regulatory standards where factories are built, um, you know, address issues of environment and, you know, working conditions and social issues, you know, this is the moment to push to make sure that those, um, you know, standards are built into the systems that govern the, you know, development of this infrastructure. And so I guess, you know, you know, when I think about the future, I think, you know, about the challenge, but also, you know, I want to think about it as an opportunity to try and, you know, get this more right than we did uh, the last time we saw such a major energy system built out. So another question I'd like to ask is, uh, it's more of a methods one then, uh, which is about your source material. So when you wrote this this book, then what kind of material did you build on? Did you work with uh, corporate archives uh, or other types of material? Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's it was hard, um, and I mean, part of it's why it took me ten years to write the book. Um, I really started thinking about this project in two thousand and ten, and I conceived of it really exactly you know, as the book kind of wound up: three case studies around lead acid batteries, double batteries, and lithium ion batteries. And as I got into the project, I realized that lead acid batteries were easy because they're poisonous and they've been highly regulated and there's just an enormous paper trail, right? And, you know, what is the history you know, just, what do historians get excited about, right? And, you know, big paper trails and big archives like this, you know, sets our world uh, alight. Um, Whereas the AA batteries, you know, were a product of the consumer products industry. It was, you know, let's see, Energizers was owned by Procter and Gamble, or maybe it's Duracell, but you know, it's big, you know, consumer products corporations. And I, you know, as a historian, I really struggled to gain traction because there wasn't as much of a paper trail. Um, there weren't corporate archives that I could gain access to, and so I really struggled with source material. Um, 
with that part of the project. And then the biggest challenge was the lithium ion battery industry because it's, you know, she knows such a competitive kind of real-time um, industry. And when I started in 2010, I didn't even know where to begin. But in, you know, in some way, I really kind of over the course of nine years, that story wrote itself. Right, you know, China invested in its battery industry. Companies like Tesla, you know, moved to the spotlight in the United States, which actually blinded us, I think, to what was happening in China. Um, and so, you know, that the material for that part of the book really happened while I was trying to figure out how to write the book. But in the end, I mean, you know, then I was just I was opportunistic about um, my research. I you know, was, you know, for lead acid batteries, it was easy to be kind of a, you know, the, the environmental historian I wanted to be. But for the lithium ion batteries, I mean, I was, you know, mining the Google for PDFs of corporate presentations that had been given, um, you know, for press releases, for, you know, white papers, um, for consultant studies of supply chains, and just trying to put the pieces together as best I could. Um, in, in the end, you know, I think it was successful, but it's, you know, especially kind of as the book comes closer, it moves away from, you know, the traditional resources that historians we usually rely upon. But I think that's going to be a skill that's going to be important. I think, you know, traditional archives are going to be less available to us as we go into, you know, the future as well. So just as the last question, um, we were wondering what's next? Um, maybe a 10-year project, maybe a one-year project. Um, <laughs> For yourself, but um, you know, are you going to continue working on something related to green energy or batteries or you know something else like that, or are you moving, you know, like wilderness to batteries is is you know a, a one might say a big leap. It's probably not as big a leap as it may sound. So, um, where do you think you're going to be going? Yeah, no, I'm, I think of the wilderness, the batteries thing is a pretty big leap. <laughs> it, was, it was a whole new um, skill set that I that I um, had to develop. But yeah, I, I honestly don't know what is next. Um, this book has just come out. I've got a website that I've put together in kind of one project that I've been working on um, teaching an interdisciplinary environmental studies department. And so my students are not necessarily historians. Uh, but the project I've been working on most recently is connected to the book, which is, you know, with this Inflation Reduction Act, there's been so much attention to building out a domestic supply chain in the U.S. for batteries and for electric vehicles that, you know, if you read the kind of clean energy um, you know, news. I mean, it's just a blizzard of, you know, somebody's building a plant here, somebody's exploring a mine there, somebody's going to put a refining process, um, you know, in place here. And so what my student and I have done is we've built a dashboard where we've just been tracking all of these announcements. And, um, and I've been trying to kind of keep this dashboard up to date um, in hopes that by doing this, it would also draw attention to charge. <laughs> and so that's been kind of what I've been working on just over the last summer is really trying to Kind of connect the book to this moment where there's you know, so much attention to supply chains and materials and EVs in the US. But as far as the next book project goes, I think I've learned now that I've done a, a couple of these that all the projects that I think are two-year projects seem to turn out to be 10-year projects. And so I'm going to take a year <laughs> before I really decide what I'm going to jump into next, knowing how long I'm going to be living with it.
That's a smart thing to do. And uh, Emily, we, we couldn't get to your question, but um, perhaps, Jay, what you need to do on your dashboard is, is think about um, places outside of the US as well, because Emily was wondering about China and, and their, if you own green transition to, to clean energy. And of course, in Norway here, we have uh, you know, ongoing discussions about exactly the same things and the European um, green transition and the, you know, the Green Deal. Um, so I think there's a lot afoot at the moment. Um, but we do want to thank you, uh, Jay Turner, for uh, coming and talking about your book, Charged, A History of Batteries and Lessons for a Clean Energy Future which came out with University of Washington Press in 2022. So thanks. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for starting your week off with me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Dolly.